first of all thank the college committee for the invitation to come and give this closing address for our seminary. I want to begin with a quotation from Gresham Machen. Machen wrote, The centre and core of all the Bible is history. Everything else that the Bible contains is fitted into an historical framework and leads to an historical climax. The modern church is impatient of history. Let us forget the Amalekites and fight the enemies that are at our doors. But is that a biblical position? We shall look this evening at Psalm 78 to work out what the biblical position is. I haven't myself decided whether it's a sermon, an address or a lecture, but it doesn't really matter. We must do the study that is before us. And the heading, of course, as you know, no history, no gospel. So that title tells you how important this subject is. Now some Christians treat church history with the same attitude as Henry Ford. He said all history is bunk. Others have the same approach as Jane Austen. We think it should be a romantic novel. But neither position is correct. The proper position is set out in the Psalms. So there are four things I draw to your attention by way of this psalm and a number of others. First of all, the placement of history in the psalms. We all sing the psalms, but how many notice the history? How many simply sing the psalms devotionally? I'm not against that, by the way. But I am certainly, definitely, clearly saying there is a history in the Psalms. There are nine Psalms that specifically deal with history. There is, of course, history scattered throughout the Psalms, but there are nine that are given over specifically to history. Psalm 78, 89, 105, 6, and 7. 114, 135, 6, and 7. And the size of those Psalms is important as well. Psalm 78 that we look at this evening has 72 verses. 89 has 52 verses. And 105 to 107 each have over 40 verses. So that tells you, I trust, it is a serious mistake to only sing the first six verses of every psalm. That is a serious mistake. The church is to sing all of the psalms. Maybe not in one sitting. I grant it would be, well, a lengthy singing if we were to do all 72 verses this evening. But the Holy Spirit has given to the church this history to sing. 
So it behoves us then to sing it. And not just those little portions that we happen to like or think we understand better. Or even worse, that the other parts have nothing to do with us. As one writer puts it, the Psalms are the faithful voice of the people of God in response to his saving history. That's a very important comment, isn't it? So you have the placement of history in the Psalms. We move then secondly closer to this psalm, the significance of history in the Psalms. And so let's look at Psalm 78. And to see that significance, you have to see its structure. And uh, I'll not deal with every verse, but I want to show you how this psalm is created by the Holy Spirit for us. Verses 12 to 16 recount events in Egypt. 17 to 31, they sinned yet more against them by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. 17 to 31 takes you to the wilderness. 40 to 42, the wilderness. 43 to 53, Egypt. And then 54 to 72 is about Canaan. So immediately you begin to see a pattern in this psalm. Every psalm has its own pattern, has its own structure. That's the structure in this psalm. So it begins with events in Egypt, wilderness, wilderness, Egypt, and then takes you to Canaan. Well, what does it all actually amount to? Well, the hermeneutical key to the whole psalm is set out for you in verses 1 to 11. You will notice verse 2 says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. In other words, here is a parable or a history put in the form of a parable to reveal, to teach, to show you a very significant pattern in the history of God's working. And what is this parable about? Well, it's about two things. On the one hand, it is about the sovereignty of God. Verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. So one part of the parable sets before you the sovereignty of God. The second part of the parable deals with the rebellion of Israel in verse 8. It might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Now why does all this really matter? What is the great significance? Well, the significance is twofold. To teach you, verses 1 to 3, and to teach others, verses 4 to 8. We will not hide them from their children. So it teaches you who are alive and present in the singing of the psalm, 
And it's also designed to teach each generation, the children and the children's children, this same history. So in verses 1 to 8, you have the importance of Israel's history. And in verses 9 to 11, you have the insurrection of Israel's past. And what did that insurrection consist of? Well, according to verse 9, cowardice. They were cowards. Verse 10, indifferent and disobedient. And in verse 11, they were ignorant and forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Now, alongside all of that is the section I have not yet mentioned which is verses 32 to 39. For all this they sinned still, and believed not for his wondrous works. So this section, 32 to 39, summarizes the entire problem of that spiritual instability that was described in verses 9 to 11, and lying at the heart of that spiritual instability, verse 37, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Many people ask, what's wrong with the church today? Well, perhaps the question is, what was wrong with the church then? Some say, what's wrong with Christians today? When the real question is, what was wrong with the Lord's people then? The history tells you that there are some things that just don't change. What was wrong with the church then? What was wrong with the Lord's people then? Cowardice, indifference, disobedience and ignorance. Is that not what we see? But it's already there in the history. And what produces all of that spiritual instability? The answer is, we are not right with God. Neither are we steadfast in the covenant. Be ye steadfast, unmovable. Isn't that the call of Scripture? But it's there in Psalm 78. So God has given you this history that you would see the significance of it in the generation in which we live. We don't need to go to pundits, surveys, scratch our head, pull our hair out. We go to the Bible and say, What's wrong with us? What was wrong with them then? We're not any different. We're not right with God. Neither are we steadfast in the covenant. So what you see in this psalm is that weaving together of history and doctrine. The two things go together. As Machen puts it, 
without these two elements, there's no Christianity. Now you think about that. Without these two elements, there's no Christianity. Why do we teach our divinity students all this history? Why are they taught all this doctrine? That they can see for themselves, side by side, that history and doctrine that shapes Christianity, that makes Christianity what it is, that highlights the core, the center, the glories, the aspirations, the problems. So there's the placement of history in the Psalms. The significance of history in the Psalms. But then thirdly, the necessity of history in the Psalms. Remember what the theme is, no history no gospel. What happens if you decide this history doesn't matter? What happens if you say, well, all that history so long ago is actually irrelevant? What do you think are the consequences? Do you think you can still keep Christianity and jettison the history? Do you think you can still keep all the great doctrines of the Christian faith by getting rid of the history or treating it as entirely irrelevant? Let's see what you will lose from this psalm. If you surrender this history, you change your whole view of God. Firstly, you will lose the supernaturalness of God. Verse 12, marvelous things did he. Where? When? How? In the sight of their fathers, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. Why do we believe that God is supernatural? Because it's here in the history. God has done these things. Verses 42 to 44. They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy, how he had wrought his signs in Egypt, his wonders in the field of Zoan, and turned their rivers into blood, and their floods that they could not drink. We believe in the supernaturalness of God because of the history that's recorded. Remove the history, and you will lose something about the doctrine of God. And second, you lose the righteousness of God. Verses 17 and 18. And they tempted, or they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness, and they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. The righteousness of God. How do you know God is righteous? Look at the history. What's the history tell you? They tempted God. They speak against God. And thirdly, you lose the wrath of God. Look at verse 31. The wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. 
but you only know that from the history. The history tells you God is a God of wrath. As long as you have this history, you can't abolish the wrath of God. There are many who have tried to abolish the wrath of God and the anger of God. But why are they not successful? Because every time the church sings Psalm 78, they're faced with the wrath of God. And you lose the compassion of God. Verse 38, but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. That's the compassion of God. He did not treat them as their sins deserved. He did not reward them after all of their iniquities and sins. The history tells you there's compassion with God. But you would lose that if you decide church history, all this history, how dull, how boring. What about the Amalekites at the door? Never mind the Amalekites in history. But there's something else you lose. You also lose any sense of the fickleness of human nature. You know, we are surprisingly fickle creatures. And I'm just talking about the Christians. How fickle we can be. Verse 19. Yea, they speak against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? My friends, what have they just seen? What have they witnessed? Here's a new situation. Oh, we're not sure about this. They never faced this situation before. How fickle. Verse 22. Because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. There are some times we are practicing atheism. But we're not allowed to say that, I think, sometimes as preachers, because we're always supposed to be so positive, cheer everyone up, make everyone feel good about themselves, and then you come to Psalm 78 and they say, do you see how fickle you lot are? Verse 32, For all this they sin still and believe not, for his wondrous works they had it all before them. Where's their faith in God? Verse 36, nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues. You see how pious they can be. How religious they seem to be. They have all the cliches. They have all the sentences. They nod and say amen at all the right places. But they're entirely fickle. Psalm 78 becomes a mirror. And says this history. Is it your history? Is it our history? The Puritans. Coined a phrase. They talked about. A generation of feathery Christians. 
devoid of history and doctrine. Feathery Christians, light. They change their creed every week. And so you see the danger. Give up this history and you give up all this doctrine. And again, I quote Machen, a gospel independent of history is a contradiction in terms. The idea that we can have keep the gospel and ditch the history is impossible. It's a contradiction. It's the difference between God as an abstract idea and a saviour who has acted to redeem a people for himself in this wretched world. That's the difference. And this explains why when liberals give up the history, they end up giving up the gospel. They create a new gospel. You know, the social gospel, climate change is a gospel, whatever. Once you give up the history, you have to have a substitute when it comes to the gospel. You just can't keep the gospel. You might, of course, say at this point, well, I can see the point you're hammering home from Psalm 78. But what about the New Testament? Well, let's for a moment reflect on the New Testament. What is a repeated phrase you find in the Gospels? It is this. It was fulfilled that which is spoken by the prophets. More than that, we discover that Old Testament individuals events and providences were designed to show you God, his work in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But take something very simple. In Matthew 2.18, Rachel weeping for her children. It's just a sentence. You could tip exit out. The verse before perhaps you may have to tip exit as well. But you can tip out out two sentences and read on. Does it make any difference? It makes this difference. Either Rachel existed or she didn't. Either she wept or she didn't. And if you remove Rachel... You remove the entire context in which he is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. And that calls into question the veracity of the Gospel and the truthfulness of God and the truthfulness of the Holy Spirit. How can the church say, thus says the Word of God? How can the preacher say, the Bible says? If Rachel didn't actually exist, in order to weep. That well-known text, Christ Jesus came into the world. What is that sentence? It's history. Either Christ came into the world or he did not. What does that coming mean? 
from the rest that the verse tells you to see a sinner, the history and the doctrine. You can't have the doctrine if you haven't got the history. If you say, well, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus actually, physically, really came into the world. But we're going to try and keep the idea of saving sinners. Well, what's a sinner if Jesus didn't come into the world at all? Who is there to save? Why is it necessary? You are, I'm sure, familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the very first verse says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and so on. That history is recorded, of course, in Exodus. But it's also here in Psalm 78. Actually, it's also repeated in Psalm 105. In other words, you are singing the very history that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 10. And from that history, he makes pointed application to the believer. But if that history did not exist, you can't make any pointed application. In fact, you can't say anything. You just simply have to rip 1 Corinthians 10 out of your Bible. You'll actually have to rip out most of 1 Corinthians if the history does not exist. The necessity of history in the Psalms. But then fourthly, I want to say a word or two about Christ, the centre of history in the Psalms. I mentioned earlier verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. This, of course, is the text that is taken up by Matthew in Matthew 13, 35, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. So the psalmist is called a prophet. And as a prophet, he speaks by way of a parable. And these then are the words on the lips of Jesus Christ, which means the history recorded by the psalmist as a prophet is Christ's history. It's his history. That is very important, isn't it? Because he is doing what the prophet, the psalmist, describes. So the historical and the Christological now are interconnected. They, they are inseparable. Calvin says, we can only understand the history narrated if we understand it in its relationship to Christ. So as you are singing these psalms with all this history, ultimately you can only fully grasp it as it is related 
through Jesus Christ. Remember that original quotation I gave from Machen. The historical framework leads to an historical climax. What did he mean by the climax? Jesus Christ. Calvin, of course, got to the point before Machen. In fact, we can say Augustine got long to the point before Calvin. And what you begin to see is that unity of Scripture, which has a theological foundation, but only when you correctly grasp it as both historical and Christological at the same time in the same breath. Remember, the heart of history is the covenant. And so it lies in the heart of Psalm 78. Their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. The heart of all this history is the covenant. And the formula of the covenant is, I will be your God and ye shall be my people. And what is this history? It is the unfolding of that covenant relationship. And the mediator of that covenant is Jesus Christ. So it is significant that in this psalm there's no reference to Moses. But someone is mentioned in Psalm 78. It's the climax in those remaining verses. But chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion which he loved, and he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he hath established forever. He chose David also his servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. That's the historical climax. Rick Watts, commenting on Mark 6, makes this remark. Just as Psalm 78 links God's care for Israel in his power over the sea and provision of food, verses 12 through 20, with his appointment of David the shepherd then, verses 70 to 72, so Mark presents Jesus as Israel's shepherd in the context of feeding, followed by his demonstration of power over the sea. In other words, the parable says here is a pattern. You will see the pattern in the shepherd. You will see the pattern in Jesus Christ. So when you're reading your New Testament concerning Christ, nothing takes you by surprise because it's already recorded in the history that is found in the Psalms that we sing. There are a number of lessons that I want to draw from all of this. What lessons do we draw from this theme? Well, the first lesson is this, our only hope. You know, across the ecclesiastical world, preaching 
in many places has become abysmal. And it's abysmal precisely because of this loss. Preaching which is eloquent without substance. Preaching which offers reflection without convictions. The Bible presents new, glorious, incredible, supernatural news. Not a message to be discovered or deduced, but something that has happened. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, he describes people who are forever taking soundings and never getting to the shore. That's not the way it is to be in conservative, reformed, evangelical circles. We are not in the business of taking soundings. We come before a congregation and we say, here is a message to be declared unapologetically, unashamedly, we're absolutely convinced because of the history that is recorded for us in the Bible. So we do not come with a philosophy nor psychology, but history that is foundational to the gospel. So Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the gospel is based upon certain historical facts to convey the news. That's why there cannot be any compromise. Because the hope that you have and the hope that we have as preachers in declaring the news is because of all this history that God has given us. But then secondly, Christian encouragement. You know, there are a lot of discouragements about, aren't there? And uh, there are some who would make us even more discouraged if they had their way. What does the history tell you? There's the answer. You see all the terrible things that's happened. Some people would just tell you the terrible things and then they would say, oh, it's so bad. No, the history says, let's follow the plan. Let's go down into the valley where the Lord's people were brought. Let's go to the climax of it all. That's the point we need to get to. Again, I'll quote Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let us never forget, there is nothing more comforting or encouraging to the Christian than to be familiar with the Old Testament scripture. Is anybody depressed or discouraged? Go back to your Old Testament scriptures. Read them, study them, learn them. See God's method. Do you now begin to see why the Holy Spirit has put all this history in these Psalms? For your benefit. That you will be encouraged. That you will lift your gaze from all of the dreadful, rotten things going on. Lifting that gaze up to heaven, to God. To see what God has done in the past. What his method is in dealing with his people. 
So the Psalms are given to you with all this history to teach and to encourage. And thirdly, sentimentality doesn't save. Sentimentality doesn't save. Again, as Lloyd-Jones says, a subjective, sentimental Christianity which loses sight of the grand objective facts is already seriously defective. What was the problem with people like Bultmann and all his followers? They argued the facts don't matter. The history doesn't matter. It doesn't even need to be true. It does not even need to be literal. We can still keep religious truth. But what was the result? Well, we have lived sufficiently long after Boltman and all his followers to see the consequence. Skepticism and unbelief. And it's the same with contemporary moral issues. The answer to all these contemporary moral issues, let's go back to the Bible. Let's go back to the history. The great conversation is, what are we? The whole question of identity. Well, you start at the beginning, don't you? With the history about the creation of the world. God making man. Male and female. So there's only two genders, isn't there? You can't be a third, fourth, or a twenty-fifth. I think it's up to seventy-five now. No doubt by the time we die, it might be ninety-nine, I don't know. But that's the irrationally irrationality that comes in. But as Christians, we better hold to the history, to the great historical facts. And that will keep us from being seduced and distracted with all these contemporary issues and the great arguments that are going on. And the fourth and final lesson, the assurance God doesn't change over time. That's a great assurance, isn't it? Psalm 135. Again, it's a, another one of these psalms. Psalm 135 says in verse 3, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. How do you know God is good? Well, the answer is given to you in verse 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob. We know God is good. Because of the truth of election. If you don't like election, then you're saying, I don't like the goodness of God. You can't have the goodness of God and deny election. It's there in the Psalms. You have sung it many, many times over your life. I know God is good because he has chosen Jacob unto himself in Israel for his Peculiar treasure. Verse 5. I know the Lord is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. So. 
Here is Israel surrounded with all those Canaanite pagans. The world is full of God, and the church sings, Jehovah is great. He's above all gods. But how do you know that? How does the church know that? Because of the history. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deep places. You keep on reading verse 8. Who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh, upon all his servants. This whole catalogue of the greatness of God. We know our God is great because of what he has done. He smote great nations, slew mighty kings. What mighty kings? Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. Sihon and Og. Who are these characters? You find them in the book of Joshua, don't you? Joshua 2.10, 9.10. And here you have that incredible description of the Lord killing these mighty kings. Now why did the Holy Spirit put in the psalm a reference to those kings? What's the date of Joshua? Well, it's roughly 1450 B.C. What's Psalm 135? 1000 B.C. Why does that matter? God doesn't change. The God who slew Sihon and Og in the days of Joshua is still the same God in Psalm 135. Which means He's still the same God today when you sing Psalm 135. The history is fundamental to it all. Well, as I said, I don't know whether it was a sermon, a lecture, or an address, but I do know this. You need to learn the history. And you need to sing the history. And every time you sing all of those psalms, you pause and look at the history. And then look at the doctrines that are woven around that history. And learn what the Holy Spirit is telling you about God. The works of God. The greatness of God. The grandeur of God. The glory of God. The sheer supernaturalness of God. And if at any time you are discouraged, go back to the Psalms and the history. And you might even recall the title, New History, New Gospel. May the Lord bless these words to you. We'll close and we'll pray. Okay, let's stand for prayer. Almighty and ever-blessed God, 
We marvel at what thou hast recorded for us. And as we consider the Saviour lifting up these psalms and singing them, that history was his history. And that history is given to us to sing. It is also our history. We pray then, O God, that thou wouldst bless and enrich our lives by these very psalms that thou hast given to us to sing. And instead of beginning with ourselves in the reading and the singing of these psalms, to begin at the very point at which the psalm begins and to trace through these psalms that message that thou hast set out before us so that as evangelicals, as the Lord's people, we may indeed be steadfast, not fickle, not addressing thee with flattery, but with seriousness and authenticity and genuineness, that we be not cowards or rebellious. To the contrary, we be entirely submissive and accepting of thy providences, knowing that thou art the one who is in charge, so that we might simply wait on thee and see what thou shalt do even in our generation. Hear then our prayer. Pardon all our cynicism, our atheism, our unbelief and disbelief, and cause, O God, that we might be truly thankful and resolved to read afresh that history that is set before us for the blessing of our own souls. Hear our prayer, pardon sin, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we shall sing from Psalm 137. By Babel streams we sat and wept. When Sion we thought on, in midst thereof we hanged our harps, the willow trees upon. 137 will sing all of this psalm. <coughs>
behalf, I'd like to thank Mr Kirkland for his address this evening. Um, I'm sure we all have found it profitable. I hope you've been challenged by it. I certainly feel somewhat rebuked in that I know that it's so easy for us just to sing a few of those verses, perhaps without going through the history. We might do that at family worship, less so in our public worship, but it's a reminder to us of tonight of the importance of that history, and we trust that we will be more enthused in the history of the Bible and God's dealings in history with us, and that we will uh, be more committed to encouraging ourselves, learning the lessons from these Psalms and the other parts of Bible history. So we thank you, Mr Kirkland, for your address this evening, and trust the Lord will follow with its blessing. Also thankful to the Deacon's Court and the congregation here in West Hill for the use of the buildings, for their kind hospitality in many different ways. And please be assured of our uh, deep appreciation of your help to us as a seminary. There will be tea and an opportunity for fellowship uh, as we close. Please get behind if you can. One correction, the opening of the seminary is the 12th of September, the week before the School in Theology. So the 12th of September, that Tuesday, God willing, we will have the opening meeting. We thank you for your presence and for your prayers. We shall close with prayer, thanks for the food and benediction. Our Lord and God, we pray that thou wouldst follow with thy blessing all that has happened this evening, that especially the word of truth brought home to us would be laid up in our hearts and bring forth fruit in our lives. We rejoice that thou art the God of history, that thou art the true, the living God, the one who has revealed thyself in thy glorious grace, in thy love and mercy in Jesus Christ, the God of justice, who will triumph over all thine enemies. O Lord, bless us and bless the truth to us. And grant that thou us continue with us as we have fellowship one with another. Bless the portion that we are to receive. We thank thee for the kind hospitality shown to us here. And we pray that thou us remember those who help in this way. So Lord, part us uh, with thy blessings. Take us to our homes in safety. For we ask all in, for the sake of thy dear Son, and now the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all.